Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. I am Matt Freeman. Uh, are you? Well. Am I? I don't think so. I think you're Scott Daly. But what does that mean? Well, Scott Daly is a voice in my head that I talk to every Tuesday night. That's you. Oh. Okay. Well, that's a relief. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of identity issues, scary shard bringers, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we continue with Arc 17 Sundown, with chapters 17.3 and 17.4. Victoria has a bunch of chats with people about identity as Amy and Chris make their move with their new scary shard babies. That's it. That's just the whole... It's the whole episode. <laughs> Matt, it's true, yeah. what do you think of these two chapters? Man, these are great. Uh, the conversations, the the exploring of identity through, you know, we like we like to talk a lot about the idea that, like, you can explore these really deep ideas through genre fiction by making the metaphors connect. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just really loving <clears throat> what Wild Bill is doing with this arc in particular, where we're, we're just looking at identity through so many different lenses it's it's almost it's imprecise just to say oh it's about identity it, it's about very specific you know takes on the idea of identity yeah. I and mean, it's really forcing you to ask a lot of specific questions and i think it's really really fascinating i agree i i will i will say that that prepping for this week's episode was harder than it normally is for me because it it's deciding where to talk about what you know because i think so much of these these two chapters are just ongoing conversations and explorations of that central theme so it's like you kind of want to talk all about it all at once and and deciding yeah. like where to where to parse it and and I, I don't know how good of a job we did we'll see but i mean <laughs> i think the interesting thing about these chapters is is we are definitely getting to a point in the story where the themes seem to be coming to an head this idea of identity that arguably has been in the background of this entire story is coming to a focal point and coming to a, a, a point of direct conflict for our protagonist and uh, the thing she's involved in. Um, and that's good because I think we're approaching the end of the book. I don't know how close we are. I don't want to make an actual prediction on that, but we're getting there. And, and so it makes sense that these things are kind of starting to come together in a very satisfying way, but I, I don't it makes our job a little harder because these are such big ideas and uh, it's not like, scene by scene we can break them down it's it's interwoven throughout this these entire chapters and indeed god this whole book yeah as you say you could probably write a pretty good size essay about just kid win in these chapters or just vista in these chapters yeah. or or just carol in these chapters and and what what is being said through that character but the fact that all of these characters are bouncing off of each other interacting and that like you said it's all it's all threading together that makes it more rewarding to read and more difficult to talk about. Yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So let's attempt right. to do that. Let's do it. Uh, quick announcement. 
up uh, at the at the start um again the halloween costume contest is open please email photos of yourself or you know somebody else i guess wearing a parahumans themed halloween costume to um gotwormpod at gmail.com again we have to stress that if you are emailing a picture of somebody else you have uh, gotten their consent first <laughs> yes please um yeah and and check out the the website to see what the rules are yeah. about that and that will also be linked in the show notes attached to this episode yeah all right let's get on into these chapters let's do it 17.3 and we continue catching up with Manwin and Clockblocker. <laughs> and exploring this arc's concept of the resurrected flock and their deviations from the people they used to be. And I think it's safe to say a lot of this is being used as a very clever way of talking about Victoria's present issues with identity, uh, as we'll see more explicitly in the next chapter. And I also think it's safe to say that this is all a great metaphorical way of talking about identity and how it changes over time. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree with that. You're absolutely right. Uh, if there's a theme of this arc specifically, then it is this idea of the changing nature of identity. How much of ourselves are we? What do we do to get back to that early version of ourselves? Can we? Should we want to? Um, I, I like this idea. You know, when the arc name was revealed, my immediate connecting point was the the concept of sundowning. You know, this this late stage dementia idea where you kind of start to lose yourself a little bit, where where bits and pieces of you go away and it leads to confusion um in people and that's i that's kind of i think that really fits what we've been talking about so far yeah and i mean not not just i mean the fact that it's temporal over the course of a day you can be lucid in the morning and and really experiencing heavy dementia sim- symptoms in the evening and yeah. then back the next morning like it's it really emphasizes this idea of identity being this like plastic malleable thing yeah um, yeah and, and yeah, I mean, the, just the idea of, of dementia in general is also obviously an example of uh, people changing in, in rapid, sudden and upsetting ways in, in very short periods of time. Yeah, totally. One of the things that I've been really thinking of after these past couple of days after reading these chapters was how the flock kind of fit into our overall you know, parahumans metaphor, right? We have we have this defined idea of powers as this overarching metaphor, uh, literalization of trauma, and um, and, and so there's this idea that like the, the that that you need to get closer and more attuned to your trauma to to really grasp control of it. That's this like overarching idea. That's that's Victoria's main goal right now. Um, but but who are these dead people that come back to life and, and how do they fit into this metaphor? Right. And I, I don't have a perfect answer for that, but it is a concept I want us to kind of think about and explore as we go through these very heavy identity focused chapters, because I think, I think it is doing something very specific. The flock represents something very specific and it's not just a reflection of, of what Victoria is going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's own really interesting idea. Yeah. Um, which I, I mean, I think we've been having a lot of fun talking about it on the subreddit lately, or the um, the Discord too. I guess both. Yeah. Just all, all the different kind of interesting questions it raises. This idea of you've been scanned by something, and now it's gonna it's gonna recreate you. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? <laughs> right. And 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 yeah, it's it's really really interesting stuff. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about data analytics as it comes to identity. <laughs> It's basically what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Victoria and Chris Tuffer uh, <laughs> talk about 
cape adjacent shared experiences and the kinds of things the protectorate would do to reach out to kids. Man, I, I really latched onto this opening part of this chapter a lot. I, I just like, you know, you and I have talked so much about how every moment is a potential for character beats here. And there's this little this little tiny story they tell, this little connecting moment between these two characters is just really great. And it's 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 another small window into the complex past of victoria and she was this person that presumably was the best in her class she won the privilege of getting to go hang out with a cape for a day and have a one-on-one session with a cape but it was it was talked about that she already hangs out with capes all the time why should she get this privilege when other when other people don't have it and she does so so she she gives up her spot. And I like that detail a lot in the story, Matt, this idea that she gave up her spot and went home and cried. It's not that they took it away from her. It's that she gave it up. And like, I, I love this idea. Like, I feel like Carol was probably, and maybe this is just my anti-Carol bias showing, but I, like, I, I wonder how, like how, who it was that was talking about how it's not fair, right? Like, where was that coming from? Because I don't think it's, too crazy to extrapolate out to be coming from Carol, right? And this idea that Carol may, might not have told her directly to give up her spot, but she was kind of pressured into this idea that no, you shouldn't need that. You don't need that. Give up that spot. That's not important to you. You have me. I'm a cape. You hang out with me all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I admit my mind didn't go there, um, but I can see that. It's quite plausible. What's What's interesting is that while she did hang out, you know, technically hang out with her mom all the time, it, it wasn't at all in in a context that young kid Victoria would find satisfying. Right. Like she she wants to be out there seeing what the capes are doing, um, live, living that life with them, right. and g- getting to go on at like a ride along would be pretty close to that. Yeah, but that's that's what she's being denied. And, so. and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if we have any kind of real confirmation that pre trigger Victoria ever got to do that with any member of her family like actually got to go out and see their caping world right she was yeah. there she was with them at like press events and stuff but like only on the periphery until she earned the right via triggering exactly yeah i, I don't think that they went out of their way to include her until she was a cape and then she you know magically transformed into a different person <laughs> in, in in carol's eyes basically right <laughs> when you went from being uh, not useful to being useful or, or from being interested, from being not interesting to being interesting, maybe. Yeah. 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 I, I just, I love that whole little bit. I love how much that says about Victoria. And, and I mean, I think, I think one of the things we'll see when it comes to identity in these things is that these super small things actually matter, um, in ways that you wouldn't even know in constructing who you are as a person. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, th- I think that there's a good opportunity to talk about that idea when we get to, chris's story in a second yeah yeah um so yeah speaking of chris she thinks to herself about how he doesn't make eye contact and he doesn't seem to have made peace with his strange appearance and 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 so this is one of the things that i really love about the 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 amazingness that is the flock in the story and this wrinkle of them like they are not people who are different and don't know it they're people that are aware of their difference, right? Mm-hmm. Kid Wynn is aware of the person he used to be, and he is aware of the person he is now, and he is aware that those two personalities don't line up. And and that's so interesting, right? Because you could very well easy, easily see a version of this in which the flock members just, you know, I mean, you wake up, I'm me, right? I think I'm me. This 
feels like me. Sure, whatever. Um, and it's other people that are having to notice these things and point these things out and be uncomfortable with them. But no, it makes it very clear here in every single one of the flat characters we've seen that they are aware of these differences, that they are conscious of them, that they know the person they were and they don't quite understand why they're not that person anymore. And I think that's like it's it's a small but really important distinction, right? Yeah, no, I love it because basically you you could I mean, maybe I'm extrapolating here, but conceivably Kidwin could be aware from moment to moment of what old Kidwin would do in this situation. Yeah. And yet not feel compelled to behave that same way. Right, right. Um, because he's not the same person, really, or, or is however you want to phrase that his, his priorities are jumbled up. Things that things that used to be in the background or in the foreground and vice versa. And, and so the consequence is that, is that these people behave differently and they're aware that they're behaving differently. And they're also aware that they're missing memories. It's not just like, um, like they're aware of the memories being hazy, which, which is different from, from just not having them. Sure. Yeah. I I love it. I mean, like, it's one thing for another person to talk to you and say, man, you really don't sound like you. It's entirely never for that person to reply back and say, yeah, I don't really feel like me either. Um, It's such an interesting wrinkle in this whole thing. And I think it really drives this central idea of identity crisis of, of trying to, and not being sure of who you are and where you fit in, in the scheme of things. Yeah. I love it. Valkyrie, Valkyrie and others mentioned like, yeah, they can probably maybe get back to who they were before. And I think that's a fascinating thing to talk about because um, what is it to get back to who you were before? Yeah. Like like you can't, a normal, you and I can't rewind ourselves to who we were yesterday. Yeah. So so how do you, how do you get yourself back to who you were before and, and, and why would, why would it work that way? You know, I'm not saying it's impossible. It would be, you know, whatever direction the story goes, I'm sure is going to be fascinating, but it's, um, I don't see any like like I don't see any reason to assume that their personalities are going to snap back into the form they used to be. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about this is um, dying changes you probably. Right. Like so the idea that you can get back to the person you were before, like implies that the experience of going through the change that resulted in the person you are now uh, was not impactful enough or, or is not something you want to keep as part of yourself. You know, it's like, it's very complicated. It's, 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 there's a whole lot of messy nuance here. And this is why I mean that this conversation, this episode is going to maybe be a little bit different than the other ones is because we're getting, we're getting these like huge, like huge, broad and deep concepts. Right. I mean, just, you know, peek behind the curtain, the last several things you and I have said back and forth have been, off script, just conversation. <laughs> right. and we just kind of exploring ideas. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Christopher says he mostly remembers the Cape stuff or the mo- mundane stuff that sucked mostly. And he focuses on a few specific memories, one being a relatively traumatic instance where him, Gallant and Battery went for what was supposed to be an easy crisis point and ended up having a horrible experience. And then, uh, when he went home, he shared his struggles with his dad, who then took the next day off work and played pinball with him. Ah, uh, uh, I love the story. I love the story so much. And I, and I know Wildbow has officially declared Dauntless the best dad, and I'm not at all interested in challenging that. But man, look at this guy. How refreshing is it just to have a story about a, a pr- parent figure who just does a nice thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it almost makes me wonder if this memory is genuine. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It is a good point. I think it might just be a reflection of how I personally value gestures like this. But the idea of like uh-huh. your dad taking off of work because he recognizes you just need a day um, to spend together bonding away from it all. It's just so goddamn wonderful. I love it so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. You know, it's interesting because I've had all week to think about this and I still don't have like a good theory as to why the shard would preserve this memory other than, you know, Victoria's theory of just like, well, it's kind of adjacent to painful things or maybe it was just a really important memory. Yeah. Well, I I think that's when we start really diving into this. The, the interesting nature of this is, yes, this was a memory that the shard decided was important enough to uh, load up into the Chris 2.0 program. Um, and it's interesting because you almost get the sense that Chris doesn't really know his father outside of this memory very much. Like we get this little bit of detail about how like that would, that would be like his thing offering a beer, but like it, it, it to me shows like how much of this is layered on top of previous things and, and how much, cause some of the story feels like just the haziness of memory of remembering things that happened a while ago. Like, you know, when I'm thinking of times I spent with my dad in the past few years, like I don't remember all the specifics. Some of the memory is hazy. That's kind of what memory does. But, but there's like this difference where just because you don't remember it, like memory and identity are two different things, right? And things can, inform your identity even though you don't have like conscious recall of them absolutely yeah i mean like you said the last two years i probably have memories but you know go go 25 years ago and i probably have like knowledge that a thing happened and then basically if i try to remember it i'll be reconstructing right kind of an imagination picture of what that was yeah and that's just how memory works like like it, every time you remember something you basically decode it and then re-encode it and you make small mistakes meaning every time you remember something you're degrading your memory which is kind of a existentially horrifying yeah. thought but 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 that also like i think the point here is that doesn't maybe matter quite so much because what matters is that you know that thing happened. It doesn't matter whether you have that eidetic recording of it. Sure, but I think there's things behind that thing that make that thing important. Like, I think one mm-hmm. of the things you could, we could argue the shards are doing here is is saying, okay, this this clearly is an important memory. Let's pull this memory and load it in. But the the central reason for why it was an important memory is not included in that. You know, like, mm-hmm. it could very yeah. well be. Like, Chris, like, mentions offhanded here that... Uh, the reason why this was such an impactful moment to him is because it was the first time his dad was like fully in his corner. And and it, it, it may be well that 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 idea was loaded into his brain, but not like mm-hmm. the feeling or the identity behind it of Chris and his father having this long, complex relationship um, that paid off beautifully in this one day when his dad recognized something he hadn't recognized before and made this gesture he had never made before and how like the memory is important, but like the context around why the memory is important matters too. And is that stuff being loaded in? Is that stuff being considered by this sorting program? I don't know. And, and, and maybe that's why we're seeing this, this weirdness, like where an idea is brought in, but like the, the the surrounding matter of the idea of the memory is not loaded in. And that really dives into a central understanding of what is identity, like what makes you you? Because like the short answer is, well, it's everything. Everything I've experienced, everything I've done makes me me. But when you start to actually like 
through the magic of genre, start to pick and pull and select certain things. What what makes what part of you? And, you mm-hmm. know, like this this central concept is is interesting and, and fascinating to me. And, and the, the metaphor I came up with, like, was what would Scott and Matt look like if we constructed a, a version of ourselves just based solely on our podcast archives. Right. And, and I think this is really interesting because I think, and I think you'd agree with me on this. We're pretty upfront, transparent and ourselves on the show. I don't think we, we don't have personas. We don't lie. We don't make up portions of our personality. Yeah. I think, I think as we've said, if, if, uh, you know, we pretty much are being ourselves and, uh, yeah, this, this is how we are in real life. Um, but <laughs> and yet, yeah, um, and yet, you know, th- there are certain there are certain topics that we talk about heavily here that we don't really talk about in other contexts. Yeah. And vice versa. There are certain like um, it, w- it came up in the discord, like the 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 facet of of Matt that is a, a dad doesn't really come up a whole lot on the podcast. Sure. And yet it's an extremely significant part of of who I am and how I see myself and what I see my role in the world as being. So if you reconstructed me from the podcast archives that would be pretty much missing except for kind of a vague outline of like, yeah, he's, uh, he's got some kids, I guess. Yeah. Which, <laughs> y- yeah. I mean, it's really, really interesting kind of to, to think about. And yeah. Um, well, and I think that's exactly what we see in this chapter, right? Because Sarah sees crystal and knows crystal is sees crystal. Yes. Daughter. That's my daughter. Um, but when she talks to her, she relates to her only through the Cape specific stuff. Right. And I think right. that's, I think that's how podcast Matt would relate to his children, like recognize they're your children. Uh, you are their parent, but your relation to them would be all through the lens of whatever sorting system created this you. Yeah. In this case, the sort of sorting system being uh, whatever I happen to want to record and put out into the world, right, which exactly. which is, just, is all like arbitrary and just as much of a way as as the shards recording and storing things yeah. that they want to use for conflict. And and I believe our understanding of the shards is that they are recording everything right. That, that I think I think so that they are taking in. So it's like it's like an infinite array of data that is the personality of Matt. But to getting back to my data, data analytics metaphor, they are running a they're running software to take to collate yeah. and sort and process that data in a specific way. And the, right. the the manner and the algorithm behind that program will change what is extracted from the data. Uh-huh. Yeah, the specific database query. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That's awesome. Um, and, and, you know, another place that that I like to take this is just interpersonal relationships like like every every person who knows you knows the facet of you that they know and sure why why you present them certain aspects of yourself and not others probably varies by context and by time and by i don't know all kinds of other things um but i mean and the story later on kind of brings this up directly the idea that um I think it was was it Crystal or Vista who who brings up the 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 mom who they knew who all she could it's talk Crystal. about was her kids. Yeah, Crystal brings that up. All she can talk about is her kids. She's so one dimensional. And yeah, we are doing this really out of order, but that's fine. It's a complicated. <laughs> I knew complicated I knew it stuff. was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. 
Um, and then Carol's like, well, yeah, guess what? You only knew one aspect of her. That was probably the aspect she showed you because you were young and she thought that she could connect to you about that stuff. Right. And she actually has a whole rich inner life that you have no knowledge of. Uh, and I think we all do this all the time. Yeah. Um, to each other. I mean, I think the, and, the most famous yeah. and well-known example of this is the concept of kids seeing their teachers outside of school and yeah. being like, whoa, you do things outside of school. You're not just a teacher all the time. Right. I mean, that's a very childish, <laughs> reduced version of that. But I think it's it's the same thing, right? You You see one facet of a person and assume that that facet encompasses their them totally and it's just not the case with anyone yeah exactly i mean i think that's that's the the crazy place to take it to is like not only do you only show one particular facet to the cashier at the grocery store uh you only show a certain a certain amount to your closest friends and your parents yeah you know your significant other even like that they can't possibly know what it is to be you yeah and if 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 you're not able to record what it is to be you and then print out what it is to be you <laughs> is it really you well i and that's i mean i think it gets so confusing because does it matter like at the end of the day like the the kid win that is standing here talking to victoria is kid win he is this version of chris he's uh -huh. not that version of Chris, but how much does that matter? I, I don't know. I don't know. Like it, it feels like it should matter, but does it? <laughs> I mean, I, Victoria I, certainly like is, is pretty indifferent to this. We'll get to it in a minute, but this idea of like the center of who I am is living at a different address, which seems like a very radical shift in a, in a, a person defining who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, I find all this very upsetting because I've always taken the idea of like us, being uploaded into computers, being like the future as a serious idea. <laughs> and and now this is this is really messing with me because I'm like, well, what exactly is being uploaded into the computer? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Is What does it mean Great. to upload yourself? Is it to just the, the, your life experiences downloaded into data and then processed by a thing written by another person? Because is that going to be you, Matt? I don't know, Scott. I much preferred it when I didn't have to think about these things and I just assumed it would all work fine. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> thanks, Wild Bo. Yeah, thanks, Wild. Here we are now. Uh, Thank you. I love it, though. I mean, I really do. I, I, do. I This is the reason we're spending so much time talking about this is because I think for both of us, this is just inherent an inherently fascinating concept that the the, the book is really diving into, mm -hmm. and and I love it. I love it so much. Me too. So let's get back to the script, Scott. Oh yeah, that. All right. So Victoria relates what Christopher is telling her to the framework for thinking about shards that she's been building. Uh, and like basically how she found different facets of herself to bring forth. Christopher asks what we've been thinking. Is the Victoria who went to the shard world the same Victoria who left it? And she basically says, yeah, kind of. I mean, she says she feels different, but specifically because of the control she gained, not that she's a different person. Um and then she goes into this complex, like we talked about this complex, Victoria living at different addresses, the different facets each have a different address. And I'm still me, but the center of who I am is living at a different address, which I mean, like you're basically saying the core of my person is different now. My core is different. And that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't think I took that uh, line as, as being as strong as you did, but you're absolutely right that it's like she's kind of blase about the idea that there's a dramatic internal shift 
um, yeah. in her life. Well, I mean, it, it is true that the, like the core of who she is didn't become something entirely new. It just became a different priority system. Yeah. And also, I kind of want to correct myself there because I, I, I think by the end of this, uh, the, the, the um, 17.4, I, I think it's clear that she hasn't been blasé about about all these things. I think she's been terrified to think about them. Sure, sure. Um, and by all these things, I mean like all all of the big question mark things that have happened to her recently where we're like, holy shit, this seems like a big deal. And then she never thinks about it. It, it's not because she's blasé. Um, and, and, and I think that the next chapter is, is a really great culmination of, of all, all of what's been simmering under the surface with that. Yeah. For the whole book, the whole book. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I agree. And I think, you know, for the two of us to just like get scared about talking about identity <laughs> in abstract, she is a woman that is living. It is literally living yeah. all these these abstract ideas because i mean that's that's we haven't said that specifically but that's one way in which all this stuff is is syncing up to our main character a lot what the flock is going through as you said at the very beginning is is very close to not in the same way but very close to what victoria is struggling with yeah i mean in the sense that the flock and victoria both kind of got sucked into shard world and then spat back out yeah it's just yeah her process is a lot less dramatic than theirs. Yeah. I mean, we can't discount the fact that her, her body was reconstituted by Amy and it's not the same way in which the flocks bodies were reconstituted, but, um, she did have a external force recreate her in a certain way. And she remains unconvinced about the idea of, of that person being the person she was is, should be, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really good point because really it's not like Amy was storing a down to the molecule blueprint of Victoria's body in her brain yeah. that was certainly stored on the shard. Um or yeah, so that's definitely something that came from Shard World. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good yeah. good point there. Yeah. So um I just want to talk about this exchange here. Um I I don't even know exactly what I want to say about it other than I just thought it was a great moment. Um so Victoria is, is talking about how she feels, and she says, Up until I entered that room, I didn't have control, and the huge aspect of this world felt massive, untouchable, out of reach. I saw a broken trigger where a man described being a small figure at the mouth of a volcano. You can't beat the volcano. It swallows you up and you have no chance, and sometimes it's the next person's volcano. I'm sorry I didn't visit you, Vista said, after I shook my head. Um... Yeah, just I just uh, I don't know that not not a whole lot to say. I just love the writing there. I love the the interjection of of Vista's like feeling into the moment. I think I, th- I guess what I want to say, like from a writing perspective, is like and anytime I notice something in writing where I'm like, I never would have thought to do that. It makes me want to pay attention to it. And what I mean specifically is Vista's kind of derailing the conversation here. Like it's it it, it goes against the flow of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a genuine character moment Yeah, and, and you should always go for the genuine character moment over what do I need to convey with this conversation to move the plot forward. And I mean, it also, it also helps clarify, it specifically helps clarify what Victoria is talking about by some next person's volcano, which I mean, that probably should have been obvious for us anyway, but, but it helps clarify that and also helps clarify Vista's response to this statement. Like what? 
her take on what Victoria is saying here is immediately mm. to the to the reminder that this thing happened. And I, I feel guilty about my uh, lack of of response to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, I love yeah. like we're, we're about to talk about control and control is something that that Victoria is is all in for at this point. And I love this idea, even in here, even before she, she, she goes into, into control, she's broaching on it. And it's not just like right now, she's very happy with control for herself. Um, and she's, she's gotten control of her wretch in a way that she never has before. And she's that, that's, that makes her happy and scared at the same time. But then we see this, this last part of this line. And sometimes it's the next person's volcano. And I think that is really, you know, and I don't want to take anything away from Victoria. I think she is like um, doing this to help other people. Helping other people is one of her big things, but also this idea that it's very easy to get swallowed up in someone else's volcano. And if Mm -hmm. I don't help those people get control over their volcano, then it could destroy me. So it's kind of this thing out of like, out of genuine care for other people, but also this fear, this fear of having what happened to her happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she's being, I guess I want to say honest with herself in ways that she hasn't necessarily been, or maybe explicit about certain things that she hasn't been explicit about prior to this point. I would say that because I wouldn't want to say being honest because that implies dishonesty in the past. And I don't think it's ever been that. I think she's been pretty upfront with who she is and, or what she wants rather. Um, I think, I think making explicit some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all this stuff about control, like you said, that's clearly been a part of her character all along. Yeah. Um, but she's, she's speaking it out loud and, and to herself in ways that she hasn't before. Yeah, for sure. And, um, so yeah, I want to talk about this next bit too. Um, so who's talking here? This is Kid. This is Kid Win. Kid, um, so Kid Win is talking about how he thinks about himself, and he says he feels like an end result, a fabrication. The only lasting impressions from the past are the essential ones that made me into me. I thought about that. The wind picked up. I turned my head so the hood would, would protect me where it was colder. Vista hunkered down a bit, and Dennis took a step to the side so the breadth of his upper body blocked the wind for her. Um, again, like these just just pulling out really nice writing storytelling moments from these, from, from this conversation, because think about how this, this could have just been dialogue. Yeah. Like it could have just been kind of let's, let's convey this information between the characters. And yes, of course there's going to be character behind that because there, there always is with wild Bo, but he goes out of his way to have more, more than just that. Right. Like we've got, we've got the moment of Vista, kind of spontaneously offering a, 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 an admission of guilt and, and wishing that she, she could have done things differently. Here we've got, we've got, you know, Dennis shielding Vista with his body, like whatever else is different about him now, he instinctively protects her physically. Yeah. Um, just, and just the idea of like this, this kind of chilling wind kind of intervening on their conversation they're having yeah. is, is is interesting and evocative. I agree. It's a beautiful setting, and and I do really like the the subtle Dennis bit there because I think that is that is quintessentially a Dennis thing in that moment. That as much as he is different from the way he used to be, there is there it it remains true that there is a a core part of him that is still Clockblocker is still Dennis, and Dennis steps in front of Wind 
to protect Little Vista, the youngest member of his wards group. Like that's just the type of person he is and always was. And um, it is it is like a completely you you could rip that out and the tone and the uh, the content of the conversation would not change in any real way. But yeah, I mean, it is take the lessons that I've learned from this book are take, as you said, take moments to characterize wherever possible. Like every opportunity is an opportunity to add characterization. And I think it makes this conversation more interesting because you inject it with these moments. Like it, it flows a little bit better. I agree. Yeah. It, it, it just, it just all feels, I mean, more or less what you just said, it just feels more real when, when it's just laden with character like this. So yeah, great, great conversation. So Christopher warns Vicky that anything that she says might get reported back to Valkyrie, um, which is, again, kind of uh, something that might get him in trouble. Yeah. But he's not going to be dishonest. I like the theme of full disclosure that's in this arc where everyone's just telling people anyways in which they might be compromised or <laughs> like like dragon and defiant. Now this and then in the next uh-huh. chapter, Victoria's like, hey, um, I know your techniques and I might subconsciously use them to say the things you want to hear. Like everyone's just being yeah. like, hey, full disclosure, full disclosure. <laughs> Reminds us what we said before about how we both hate it when drama is created because characters don't communicate basic information. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I talked about that just last night on the OC <laughs> podcast I'm doing because it's annoying. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Uh, so Victoria then talks about her family's relationship with control and how, how her, her whole family is either control freaks or people with no control. And Victoria says, that for her part, she is willing to push and to fight to get some control. Yeah, and I love this. I love this kind of, it's a very Victoria thing to like do this black and white breakdown of the members of her family, right? It's either the people that obsessed with the control or the people that had none. And that's how we divide it out. And I am definitely going to be the, the former in that. I am going to be the one that's in control. I am going to be, I'm just going to embrace my essential carolness, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> And it's, of course, it's thematically fitting, right? Like we've talked about this so many times throughout this chapter or through this book. And that's why I think I really feel like we're we're coming to uh, approaching the climax, at least, that all these these disparate themes and ideas are coming together. Like control was something that was ripped away from Victoria. Amy took away control from her control of her body, control of her brain that was wrestled away from her. And she's obsessed with not only getting it back, but maintaining it at all costs. And, and this method, this, this path is an outlet for that, that fear of loss of control that I never want to feel that way again. The only way is to wrestle control from this alien in my head and then make sure that everyone has the same ability to do it as well. That nobody's, head aliens can wrestle control away from any of us ever again. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's, it's almost, it's almost a scary thing to see her admit. Um, because she's, I think she's kind of struggled with her Carol nature for the book up to this point. And this feels like the moment where she's saying, fuck it. (laughs) I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna grab it. Like if, and she's kind of been in, she kind of said recent, uh, or thought at least similar things recently where she's been like, if I see an opportunity to, you know, solve the problem, I will take it. And yeah. that's, that I, I do think that is at odds with a, an earlier in the story, Victoria, where everything was more about consensus, touching base with other people, making sure she's on the right track, not trusting herself so much. Being this 
deep into the idea that she wants to take control, it, it necessarily means that she's less concerned about whether she's spot checking her her reasoning with everyone else. Yeah. And that's that I mean that's verifiably true because of everything that she just did, right? She admits it was reckless. She admits she had no idea what was going to happen. She felt like she had to and and I would I think there's a good case around that. But still, she just acted. She just did it and it, hey, it worked out this time. Yeah. Right. And and I mean textually she did it while she was presenting whatever facet aligns with her you know four years ago self yeah yeah. so like we have strong reason to be suspicious of like hey this is like like literally not the same victoria um so the fact that she's talking about control in this way it doesn't sound like the old victoria because it kind of isn't yeah that's true that's true so yeah and and i mean it just it, there, there's a lot. I mean, we'll get to it when Vista talks to her at the end of this chapter. But there's a lot of this this fear of losing herself. Um, and, and, and what I think we're kind of seeing very subtly is the connections between people in Victoria's life are starting to fall apart. And and it's being replaced by this. Greater than anything else, drive to connect to her shard to mm-hmm. get that control. Yeah, I think you're right. So as the chapter goes on, Victoria gradually notices more and more that Dennis isn't quite acting like himself. Vista eventually abruptly turns away and sits by herself, and Vicky goes to join her. Here, Vista puts her finger on what's bothering her. Uh, Dennis's inner voice and his outer voice... Um, sorry, Dennis, Dennis's inner voice is his outer voice, and his outer voice is his inner voice, uh, which is interesting, because, like, hey, all the parts are there. They're just mixed around. Yeah. Uh, and, and she, I think, rightly points out that that she herself has changed a lot, too, and she doesn't really have any shard shenanigans to excuse it um, <laughs> just due to the n- normal process of aging. So obviously what Wilo is saying here is that puberty is basically the same as dying and being printed out again by corrupted alien backup files. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what it felt like. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like being in a cocoon. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm very curious about what your puberty was like. <laughs> you don't remember the cocoon? It's, I, I don't remember that part, Matt. Um, no, so I mean, this is really interesting, right? Because like, I think you're absolutely right that, and we've talked about the flock a lot already, so I won't go over stuff again, but this idea that everything's in there, it's just in the wrong order, is really fascinating to me because it's almost, it's like, yeah, I got all this, like the shard said, here's all this stuff. Go. Yeah. And the brain is like uh okay right uh <laughs> sure this is this is all there but it dep- like and, and it's so interesting that like you know kid win was just talking about this um this this part of him um i'm st- uh, where was it i just lost it um the, this idea that he's I, I just lost it that he's um a like an amalgamation like a uh, a fabrication and and the only memories from the past are the ones that made me into me but it's just like you pull those those things and it's like how do you know how to weight them how do you know like yeah like uh, the idea of the inside voice being the outside voice and the outside voice being the inside voice literally seems to me like a, a child who's trying to put a puzzle together and <laughs> is just like ah. yeah, <laughs> this is close right yeah 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 so like it's like uh, 
if you had a video of everything that had been seen through your eyes from the moment of your birth, how completely useless would that be? Right. Like it's, it, it doesn't like the fact, the fact of having the record isn't what matters. It's, it's how it's organized and what things cause what other things to be recalled in the kind of the web of associations. Data analytics. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I, I love that. And I mean, I love this concept of, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about what the flock represented this whole thing. I mean, the flock are a human being that is created around their trauma, right? Because if it's the shard, it's the, the things that were most important to the shard were the cape moments. And if shards are trauma, then a, a, a flock is a human being whose entire identity has been constructed through the lens of their specific trauma technically if we if yeah. we extend the metaphor out and i really like that because like i i love the idea where you say that and then you say that i don't feel like me and and the the extension of that therefore is that hey the bad things that happen to you are not who you are they are part no. of it sure but they are not all of it there is more to who you are than the worst thing that happened to you and i love that idea i love it so much uh, yeah I, I love that i never i didn't think of that at all I just want I just want to let that breathe for a moment because that's a beautiful <laughs> idea. Yeah, it's not it feels incomplete because it is you're not you're not just your trauma. Mm -hmm. You're all the other random stuff that happened to you that helped shape you into who you are. Yeah, it's you're incomplete without that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so Vista talks about her own experience uh, being a cape and how. She's probably another person who can be counted as having her life dominated and consumed by powers. Yeah, I mean, it, it ends up being that this kind of line of thought is just really kind of a, a smokescreen for Vista to get to her main point or where she's actually going, which is like, Victoria, you're terrifying me. But I do yeah. I do like this general idea that like Vista, it's so ironic that in this conversation we're having about the flock and identity around your power and how Bo Victoria the flock and Vista are all characters who have put great stock in who they are as capes. Um, Vista herself has made this her whole existence almost is like to be the, to be the best cape possible to go up through the ranks, to make sure that uh, even as the people around her were dying to try to do everything in her power to prevent that from happening. I mean, that's been Vista's uh, entire identity quote unquote uh, from the first time we met her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, it, I think it's, it's interesting. Like this is just one of a, a few other caves we meet in this chapter who we are talking about the, the impact of powers in their lives, right? Like yeah. we talked about crystal last week. That's another obvious person. Um, I think Carol probably counts just as well. And, yeah. and then, you know, uh, the, the text doesn't draw attention to it, but we have a conversation that involves Jessica Yamada and her whole, well, not her whole shtick, but a big, a big uh, uh, stalking horse of, of hers was, um, hey, you guys need to have more balance. Mm -hmm. And she's in this room, she's in this situation room, <laughs> surrounded by people who don't have any balance at all. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's it. It's just it, it. It recurs a lot, and it's it's really well done. It um, does. I love it. It does. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, uh, Vista's worrying uh, that that Victoria's slipping away into the metaphorical place where she feels like she might have lost Dennis and Christopher. Yeah. And, and I love this because like, like we were saying earlier, 
Victoria just went through this whole ordeal where the connections she had to other human beings have been directly challenged. The visions she saw of Amy, of Carol, of Dean, of Jessica. Um, and and then these were all visions she saw that took either people she already didn't like and, and further emphasized that or took people that she thought she could rely on or took people that she had shaky relationships with and saw things that damaged and hurt those relationships. Then her team is split up. Then she's not connected to the rest of breakthrough directly. She, and, and what she turns to in this moment, as we saw at the end of the, the second chapter of this whole thing, I think it was the second chapter. Maybe it was the first chapter at the end of the first chapter of this arc, who she turns to in this instance is the wretch. She says, specifically at least i still have you right and so mm-hmm. we're seeing all these human connections get get uh wrecked or or torn up or broken um and we're seeing her kind of in the quest for control embrace this shard human connection and look i want this to be a good thing i want the idea the the idea of you kind of like coming to terms with your trauma and and grasping control of it to end up being a good thing but th- like it's it's not just a metaphor for trauma. It's also an evil space alien that's trying to, to fuck everything up. So like, I'm not entirely convinced that this is the best way to do it, especially the idea of I'm going to have to cut, cut ties (laughs) maybe a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's an evil space alien that specifically wants her to seize control to be the tyrant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's, it, it is concerning that that is the direction where she's suddenly finding all kinds of reasons to, believe that that's that's the right course of action yeah especially as by the end of this chapter we really start hitting beats that make us think of another person who really wanted control and where that led her yeah that's true yep yep okay so in the end uh victoria says she doesn't plan on breaking any rules because she won't need to the shards are coming to them and they need to be ready regardless which isn't saying that you're not going to break any rules (laughs) yeah it's uh yeah Yeah. like i mean i i agree with her that like shit's gonna go down whether or not victoria acts or not i think the the um um the events of the next chapter make that pretty obvious that shit's going down but yeah she it's not exactly promised there to not I mean, she, I think she made it very clear that if it comes down to it, yeah, she's going to break rules. Her her priority here is is getting control, and she's going to do whatever she needs to do to ensure that that happens. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that makes sense. So here's some some text that I think you and I both found a bit ominous. Mm-hmm. Vista says, uh, "I need a promise. Don't leave. Wasn't planning on it. Don't get so far away or disconnect so much in this whole complicated mess that I don't see you again." And then a bit a bit further down, I promise at the end of all this, you can call me Big V and I'll call you Little V. And, and then <laughs> and then just a sense of doom falls over you. Right. Like in, I think the most wild Bowie way this could go is that <laughs> at the end of this, sto- this part of the story, Victoria approaches Vista and the only thing she remembers about her is that she's called Little V and that's it. She remembers nothing else about her, has no sense of connection with her other than you're called little V (laughs) like, you know, like Uh that would be a tragic way of like making this prediction, making this promise come true while taking away the, the real like impetus behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same thought. (laughs) (laughs) Break Uh, my heart. Yeah. But 
it's probably going to be something different and worse. So I'm sure don't worry. Right. The, yeah. Wild Bo sure knows how to make it worse. He does. Anything we he, can think of. He, he really, really, he really does. We really don't have to worry that we've figured it out. <laughs> uh, so the two flock members describe what it was like being dead. They said that they would be sent as messengers, part of the communication between shards. They hint that there is something that capes can do to become more in sync with their agents. Um, but they, they won't say what it is. And then Clock Blocker brings up anchors. You need to hold on to things like your family, which is just the perfect thing to hold on to for, for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that it's actually Vista who says fuck that. Yeah. It's perfect, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so what we've kind of gotten down to here that essentially what Victoria is looking for seems to be something that is not too dissimilar from caprification, right? Like the, like the idea that you want to get more in sync with your agent. Um, the one thing that clock blocker brings up in that regard is, Oh, you, you're going to need anchors. You're going to need things to hold on to in that regard. And that, yeah. I mean, that is sending us down memory lane with what happened to, to Taylor. And yeah. I mean, it was kind of getting more in sync with your agent to a certain extent, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, jailbreaking the power in, in general. I think that's sort of what Teacher ended up doing. And yeah. he, he, my guess would be he didn't have an anchor. He just gave gave in. Yeah. Gave control over. Um, yeah. That's what it looked like. Yeah, and, and um, at the end, Taylor's anchors got tossed away one by one until all that was left was was Kepri. But we do know that Victoria's shard is different. It's a different kind of shard. It wants different things. It seems more in sync with her in general. Um, so does this mean there's going to be a different result? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a fascinating question. And I do agree that we are drawing intentional parallels with the prior story. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're meant to be asking these questions and noticing these these comparisons. Yeah, which is a great way to kind of show how I mean, we talked so much in the last book about the cyclical nature of trauma. And we're kind of seeing how people can get back to the same general choice, the same general want, right? Like I think for Taylor and Victoria, because they're very different people, the impetus behind the want comes from an entirely different place, but they want similar things. Yeah. I think it's almost like instrumentally speaking, if you're in an environment that's just chaos and violence, it's pretty rational to want control so it's not surprising that these two protagonists would converge on that as a kind of intermediate goal on the way toward, you know, almost no matter what you're trying to do, control is useful. Yeah, sure. So. I think that what the, what each of them wanted to do with that control, uh, very different. Yes, true, true. Uh, so toward the end of this chapter, Kid Win shows them a readout of all the current known threats and uh, we basically can learn that Amy's currently, you know, that the, the creation of the shard monsters is roughly contemporary with this conversation. I love that Victoria's reaction to this is both unsurprised and like, what the fuck, Amy? Yeah. <laughs> right. I love it so yeah. much. It's it's perfect. Like, right. It's one of the things we talk about in storytelling a lot. And I think we've talked about this specifically about uh, our our deconstructing Shyamalan series on the Doofcast. Uh, you should listen to that if you haven't already, um, is this idea. We talk about it specifically to twists there, but I think just this general idea that a, a plot move or a turn or a twist, whatever you want to call it, should feel both surprising and inevitable. And I think to 
our protagonist, what Amy has become is that is both surprising and inevitable. And I think, you know, as we as we gear up to whatever this big conflict is going to be in the next chapter, that too feels both surprising and inevitable, that it's coming down to identity. It's coming down to Victoria on one side, Amy on the other um, and what what their justification is going to be here, because I guarantee you, Amy still sees herself as the good guy. She's doing this for the greater good. Right. Um, yeah. We kind of get hints at that uh, in the next chapter where it says that her, her Chevalier dude is going to t- is going to deal with the machine army. That's nice. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. So I, I love I love that feeling of inevitability. And it's like, yeah, of course, of course, this is good. It was always going to be the way it had to go down. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, she's she's been warning everyone as she as she herself pointed out. I've been warning all you fuckers yeah. for for this whole book. And now I'm actually a little bit satisfied to see this is happening mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a sick way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's this exchange toward the end where um there's a little bit of skepticism cast toward Valkyrie and Victoria kind of, she, she says, I hated to ask, but how sure are we? I know you're biased, but, and Kidwin says she had access to monsters like Bakara and Eidolon. 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 Uh, she hasn't called them out, hasn't given them bodies. I, I wanted to pull this out only because it's the second time we've mentioned Eidolon in uh, as many chapters. Um, and that seems important in some way. I, I do think it's hilarious here that like the first time we mentioned him, it was specific to how he could command a room, but nobody fucking liked him. And yeah. and the second time we mentioned him now, he's put in the same sentence as a monster like Bakuda, which I just find hilarious because like it's just like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Right. Like he's one of the most powerful capes in the world seen before the events of Worm as one of the greatest heroes in the world. And now he's mentioned in the same breath as Bakuda. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. wow. That is really interesting because I don't think even Victoria would have necessarily called him a monster, but kid Wynn clearly has some opinions about, I don't, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, I mean, I do wonder how widespread this perception is. I wonder like if most people think of him this way or if most people are just like, you know, ah, oh, yeah, he was one of those, Guys, we found out later he was in Calderon, so that was disappointing. Um, yeah. But a monster? Yeah. I wonder how much of this is influenced by his time chilling with Valkyrie, right? Like, mm-hmm. Dolan's in there somewhere. Um, is she just, is ghost version of Idolan just kind of a prick? <laughs> yeah. Kidwin? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's, that's funny because they probably did interact in some way. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's interesting. So Victoria is then called by Narwhal and chewed out for interacting with Capricorn earlier. But Victoria avoids spilling the beans on why she crossed paths with Cap. And we'll deal with that. We'll deal with Narwhal next chapter, Matt. I got some words for a crystal lady. Yeah, she's she's really on my last nerve. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the chapter wraps up with Victoria basically thinking, why? Why is it that I feel like I should be more worried about one of these other other risks that we've already written off as being resolved. And this whole thing with Amy is just a distraction, basically. It, I mean, so. Is this just a simple misdirection, a red herring that the book is throwing our way? Or are we being primed for something unexpected to happen? 
Uh, I mean, I'm almost sure that we're being primed for something unexpected to happen. Um, whether it's going to be one of the the green lights or just something out of left field, or I mean, it, it, it's, I mean it's usually it's usually unsatisfying for something to be literally out of left field because then you're like, well, that wasn't set up, right? <laughs> it's going to be something that was set up. But I I like the way you phrased that sentence you said though you phrased it as something we had previously written off as resolved coming back which Uh i mean i think you structured it that way um uh, is is intentional like right like i mean there's the idea like we 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 both held pretty firm to this idea that them fucking around in dream world was going to be the thing that causes this whole thing to collapse and uh-huh. we've moved past this and we're like oh no it actually it, it ended up being totally fine and that isn't the thing that's going to cause it um and I, I i feel like you're you're laying some seeds there matt yeah i mean i definitely think that victoria dallin is in a bad place and has made some bad choices recently so she could easily be the thing that goes wrong. Sure, sure. Um, uh, I still think Crystal could be it. Yeah, here here we go. This is the most important question I have for you tonight, Matt. Uh-huh. Is Crystal the big bad of Ward, Matt? I mean, I don't think she's the big bad in the way that Zion was the big bad, but I think that I think that we it's got okay, like like just from a storytelling point of view, and this is fun to talk about at this point in the story because later on we're gonna come back and listen to this and and we're gonna know what the answer was. And so the the analysis from within the you know the, the framework of of being in the middle of a story, we know we know it's going to be something. Something's going to go wrong. It's a story. Something has to go wrong. Yeah. And good storytelling, like like the the kind of rule. It's not a rule, but a good, good guideline is the thing that goes wrong generally shouldn't be the thing that you're expecting to go wrong because mm-hmm. that's just kind of boring. It can now it can be the thing you're expecting to go wrong, but in a way that you didn't expect. That's that that's generally fine, I think. Yeah. Or it can be something that was set up, but you didn't realize that it was being set up as a thing that could go wrong. Yeah. So that's th- I think there's a lot of options for what that could be. Sure. Um, and so like it's gonna be it's gonna be one of those things, I think. And I, I don't think I'm being particularly brave and clever by saying that. Like that's just like this is how storytelling works. No. Um. But I think Pl- the brave yeah. the bravery and cleverness comes <laughs> comes from your your crystal reach. What w- I don't remember what the impetus of this whole theory was. Do you remember? I mean, the, well, the 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 thing that crystallized it for me <laughs> <laughs> was uh, was that she sees the trigger. She sees sorry, not trigger. She sees the visions um, through Tattletale Shard, and and, and th- there's a way in which we suspect still at this point suspect that it's possible that everything that she saw in those visions was like literally true, but that she pulled the wrong conclusion from it. Sure. And the literal truth is that crystals is a nice person, but the conclusion she should have pulled from it wasn't crystals doing great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and just the, the fact of crystal being shown in that sequence of images, I thought was interesting and, 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 demanded an explanation beyond just like well she's a person who victoria knows i mean i I definitely agree that like this this concept of of i've seen visions and every one of these visions confirmed or introduced the worst possible conclusion about these people except crystal she's the only one she's the only one that's still good um and i I agree that there's something more to that I, i i think we've been doing something slowly with crystal over the course of this book 
And I, 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 I don't know. I don't know where, how that's going to shake out. Um, I, I think you've gone to like the worst possible conclusion, which is fine. We are reading a parahumans novel. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it is worth paying attention to. And yeah. I, I, I love this. I love this theory and I can't wait regardless of whether it's proven right or wrong. I can't wait to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I kind of already felt like I spent too much time talking about it last week because it's like, well, it's either, it's either going to be true or it's not. Um, but it's it's a fun one to think about. And, and it's a fun example of the ways that we turn ourselves into knots trying to figure out what's going to happen in a in a complex story with a lot of red herrings like this story has. Right. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to cover this book alive like this is because we wanted to kind of distill the experience of reading a story that's being written like this right and i think this is part of that experience right this yeah. is this is part of the 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 paranoia and we talked about it a lot in the early book and i think it's mostly calmed down since since we realized we were being a little ridiculous i remember arc two we were just like who this they're all they're all evil it's all of them um <laughs> yeah right but i mean i i do i do think that is part of the fun and i'm glad i'm glad we get to talk about this right or wrong because it is it is a lot of fun yeah right and then and then there'll be a whole new level of value to this later when we when we or others go back and listen to it and get to laugh and yeah yeah you know or you know or appreciate where we were coming from absolutely i mean you yeah. could like like the biggest freaking genius of all time i could that's that's why you take those shots exactly <laughs> all right let's move on to 17.4 let's do it so here vista and victoria stop by vista's dorm room and victoria looks over all of her stuff which is all very capey Victoria then logs into her computer for her and sees that Vista has been checking out Capricorn's selfless shots. Mm. The two of them then worry about how to handle Narwhal being super pissed about uh, at them. Yeah, so this chapter, as you talked about a little bit ago, this chapter is kind of the point at which all the nebulous ideas that we've been discussing throughout this arc uh, and even the story as a whole kind of start to come to a focal point. And, and I can't help but reflect this early part where we scan Vista's room and, and reflect it through that conversation about who she was in last chapter, right? Because yeah. on the surface, everything in this room seems to back up what Vista said, right? She's fully committed herself to the Cape life. Everything here is Cape oriented. The artwork on her walls, even her musical taste is defined by her relationship with Weld. Um, all the music she likes, the text goes out of its way to, to point out how obscure and unknown this music is to the point where it's basically saying the only way Vista could have ever heard about this stuff is if it came through a recommendation with Weld. Um, even like, you know, her, her relationship with Byron is he's a cape it's still very cape centric right uh-huh. yeah um, true and and this is this is a facet of vista that we're seeing here but but it's not all of her right and i think that's one thing we, we don't want to lose in this conversation that just because this is the the vista that has been presented to the world especially through how she decorates her room what what is what is decorating your room but not a presentation of a certain facet of who you are right like i have i have movie posters all over my room i have a big wall of movies behind me um this is me projecting the facet of me that loves movies uh this is definitely part of me it is not all of me obviously and I, that is something we need to consider here. And I think that's something that is easy to get lost in when you walk in someone's room and see nothing but Cape stuff or nothing but movies. Yeah, that's, that's really, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's a fascinating idea. Like how, how much of you is encapsulated by the way you choose to, to decorate your lived environment? Yeah. Um, cause, Be- cause ultimately it's, it's curated too, right? It's not, 
it's it's what you have decided to put forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I I mean, like, I get like the essentially the way you decorate your room should primarily be for you. Right. But it, it's not entirely. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like totally. the way you decorate your house. I feel like when you decorate your house, you are absolutely decorating for you. You are definitely also decorating for other people, too, especially yeah. if you're my mom. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on the person, but I think that most people are thinking some combination of like, oh, this is how I want to express myself to other people. Yeah. Um, part of that is that you have to be able to, you know, it, it it is you, it's your preferences, but also it's your preferences sort of for the consumption of you and others. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to think yeah. about. So we think about Byron taking a shirtless, shirtless, selfless photo, just a, gl- yeah. a glistening, wet battle scarred selfless photo i I like to imagine that he was like forced to do this by a committee (laughs) and and like he did it like really grudgingly and it was kind of like sullen and or or, like tristan made him do it yeah i I think the best take is that it's actually tristan and they just tinted it blue because byron wouldn't do it yeah Yeah, um i think i think the text kind of goes like it, it does mention that he's like in shape but not buff and i think that's specifically meant to indicate byron over over tristan but yeah um, i think so it is it is just very humorous i i I like i like the idea that they made him do this and he's like can we just can i just go (laughs) yeah it's it's like you got to do one of these a month it's in the contract (laughs) yeah i love it um there's also this little bit part here where where we see victoria log vista into her old school prt password code system um and we don't really know much about this system uh, I think we've only seen it one other time in the Pigo interlude where we'd learn that it's like a series of questions by dragon um, that you might not even know the answers to yourself, but like the predictive algorithms have predicted it, which gets into identity stuff again. Right. Yeah. Like this is dragon's predictive algorithm oh, of who you are. Shit. Good point. Yeah. Like the, the, the algorithm knows you better than you know yourself. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. Um, there's not much to say about this. I, I loved the question is mom or dad, and the answer is PRT, which is just, just perfect. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, the rest of them, I don't really know anything about. If, if anyone knows what, like, what those the the two the other two questions mean specifically, please let us know because I I did some cursory digging, but I ran out of time. I uh, wasn't able to find anything concrete. Yeah, I didn't have any ideas. Um, yeah, I didn't have any ideas. So as they leave, they run into Carol and Crystal. And then they all head to the situation room together. And there's a lot of great description in this chapter focused on the cauldron base and how it feels. Yeah. The thickness of the walls, the heaviness of the structure around them and above them. Yeah. And I I love how Victoria takes this and immediately relates it back to her mother. Right. She says, my mom always felt similar, prepared, fortified, unassailable, endlessly stubborn and dangerous. If she broke, the impression I'd always had was that she would be right as rain soon after because she didn't brook weakness. And it's this powerful image of her mother um, and that it immediately undercuts that, that the text in the very next sentence says, my mom needed a hand from me to get started on the stairs. And once she had it, she kept relying on it, leaning heavily on my arm. It's like this beautiful juxtaposition, right? Where we like, we look at this big, composing, thick, powerful building and saying, this is exactly like my mom. This is just like her, except not really anymore because she's leaning on me. And, and the more she leans on me, the more she needs my help. Um, I, I love, I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of 
I don't know. It's sad. Like you, it's you kind of always see your parents as being invincible. Yeah. Um, yeah. and she's having trouble, you know, grappling with the fact that her mom is is so in such bad shape, basically. Yeah. Um. So here, Crystal vents to them about how her mom, Sarah, didn't feel quite right either, and this, of course, goes very nicely with what what we were talking about last chapter. Um. So she says it's like talking to a very one dimensional person. And in the back and forth of this conversation, Vista says some self-deprecating things and Carol makes it clear that she thinks Vista is awesome and everybody thinks Vista is awesome and Vista's parents suck ass. <laughs> Can we just pause here before we talk about this a little more to appreciate the way this sentence is written? Yes. Because it says, your parents are asshats, Carol Dallin said. Not mom, not my mom, not Carol, but her full name, Carol uh -huh. Dallin, as if to accentuate the irony of the statement, as if Victoria Dallin's point of view is is really diving into the narrative here. Um, I, I love the construction of that that one small sentence um, to really drive home a point. Yeah, I mean, it's delightful. You can't you can't miss it. Right. Even, no, even if yeah. you're not reading super close using her full name there it, it it underlines the the unexpectedness of her saying that yeah yeah absolutely 100 yeah. percent. i love it yeah and then and then she kind of you know carol a lot's been going on with carol under the surface i think because she gives this speech and it's really something you can just read into quite a lot where she says they're your family love them unconditionally stay by them through thick and thin but i think you should listen to people who sing your praises not the people with their heads halfway up their asses when it comes to valuing yourself any parent with a lick of sense would be proud. And yeah, that's about that's about Vista's family, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that's also about her and her family. Right. Like I think it's it's in in Carol's own kind of way, and I don't want to give her too much credit, but I think it's 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 the acknowledgement of her fuck up a little bit. Like the the unsent the unsaid thing here is kind of had my head up my ass a little yeah. bit in some ways. Um yeah. And it caused you to not value yourself as much. And you should have. You should have valued yourself more. There's yeah. a lot of unspoken things going on here. And I think Carol is not the type of person that can do these things directly. She's just, especially with people close to her. She just like, it is very easy for Carol to compliment a person like Vista. Um, she's done it to other people surrounding Victoria before. She's been very free with the compliments of their and and the criticisms, but also with the compliments. She struggles to do it with her daughter. She really does. And I think this is this is a very Carol way of broaching those subjects. Yeah, I agree. She's she's trying to <laughs> trying to get Victoria <laughs> to guess. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. That said, Carol is being a bit different in these chapters. And sure, I think that yeah. goes along with the theme of the arc so far, which is people I don't know. I think I feel like sundowning is a bit too strong, but people shifting, people's yeah. identity shifting, people's facets shifting. And so I want to talk a little bit about the significance of Carol being the one who says this and yeah. the fact that Carol's kind of being not Carol. Um, so another way, though, of asking that is, is Carol being not Carol or is Carol being extremely uninhibitedly hyper Carol? And is the same true of the others too? Like, like, cause you could say like, there's a certain point of view where you could say like, no, it, it's not that he, it's, it's not that Dennis isn't being himself. It's that he's being a hyper Dennis. That's just Dennis, but more so because he, all those things he used to just think now he says them. Right. Um, and you know, Carol's line here, I think is great. She says, people can surprise you. And she's, she's referring to the woman we mentioned earlier who, um, 
someone had said she was one dimensional and turns out no, she's as as multidimensional as anybody you just yeah. didn't know yeah i love that um yeah so yeah the, and and like just you know we talked about this a little bit earlier but the idea that people in real life can seem one-dimensional if you always talk about the same things with them <laughs> but that's a fact about your relationship with them not a fact about them i love i love that the way you wrote that that's a fact about your relationship with them not a fact about them i think that's beautiful because that is like the we see all the people that we coexist with through our relationships with them, like whether good relationship, bad relationship, friendship, uh, uh, rivalry, any of these relationships we have with other people is filtered through that relationship. And the idea of knowing a person, truly knowing a person is very, very difficult. So I, I really love that, that idea. Yeah. It's I, man, such good stuff in these chapters. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I think, I do think it is both not Carol and, extreme carol like i i and i think the text wants us to kind of think that because there is this line about like the things that made her her were less obstructed by things like deeper considerations or context so i think like in the fact that i fully expect and would uh, and i'm not surprised by carol saying these things or 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 having these feelings but the fact that she's saying them as bluntly i I think your parents are asshats is a very um a very inhibitionless carol right i don't i don't know if she would have said that that directly um yeah because i mean if we extend if we extend our our metaphor where she's kind of subtextually talking to victoria then she's basically saying i'm an asshat (laughs) yeah right Uh, one thing i want to say here is like yeah she gets some brain damage and that's that's definitely influencing her physically yeah but as for her behavior here i i don't necessarily want to just chalk that up to the brain damage like think about what's happened to her recently like she had to flee chin with her daughter being like horribly tortured and i'm I'm probably gonna skip over some stuff but like most recently she's had her horrible lifelong secret revealed to her daughter yeah and then and then the literally later that morning had to meet her dead sister yeah so she's probably just reeling right now and a lot of this is potentially just She's in a she's in a tough spot. It's not it's not because she's got brain damage and her inhibitions are artificially lowered necessarily. It could be that, too. I, I don't know. But I, I think I think, yeah, it, we I don't want to just write it off as brain damage. I think you're right. And I think the fact that like we see a little bit later in this chapter, like her her coming to the realization of the full scope of what Amy is capable of. Uh, is horrifying to her. So I think that's just another thing that's adding on to this, this realization moment for Carol, um, or this, this moment of everything's, everything's coming up now. Everything's coming to a head uh, for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, so before we move on, I just wanted to like, just broach the subject because it, it takes such a big chunk out of the book, um, where we talk about, Wildbow goes into really, really big detail on not only the look of, but the the mood and the feeling of the situation room that our characters are about to walk into. Like it's 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 multiple paragraphs where he just kind of explores this, starting with the like situation rooms in real life are not what they're like in the movies, and then he goes into this really excessive or excessive is the wrong word. I think it's a great amount of detail. I love this almost almost tangent where we go explore the full the full scope of this room and what the mood in this room is um and and i i just i thought it was worth bringing up because it's just mm-hmm. it's something that the book takes time to really explore 
Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling immediately was we're probably going to be spending some time in this room. This is probably a setting that it's going to pay to have an accurate mental picture of. Yeah, and, yeah. And and to understand what it feels like in this room because it's going to be it's going to matter. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that was you know again like when and where you do d- description of a setting I think is is a very difficult thing to balance in writing. I, I don't really know any like good rules of like when when do you describe a setting when do you leave it up to the reader's imagination i think everybody has their own feel for it but i don't i don't really know any good rules of thumb but i think one kind of reverse rule of thumb would be like if you notice a setting being described it's probably because it's going to matter yeah i think you're right and i think one of the things that i like about this one in particular is that it sets up the the physical uh geography of the room but the most of the words in this area is focused on mood, on feeling. And that's what really resonates with me. We've talked about how I don't really see things that I read very much, but I just feel them. And so the mood is something that translates much better for me as a reader than, okay, uh, there's a desk in the middle and there's people sitting over there. The mood of the room, how it feels. And, and I think the geography it contributes to that mood. But I think that this part of the story recognizes that establishing that mood is more important than just where the chairs are. <laughs> yeah, right. And and I and I do tend to visualize things, but what's interesting is that when I query myself of like what am I visualizing here, there's all kinds of details that I've put in the scene that are not actually described that I'm extrapolating because I'm like, all right, it's gray, it's oppressive. Yeah. So it's got dim yeah. lighting, gray walls, like like these are things that I'm writing in there based on the based on the how it feels. Sure, sure. So that's that's a cool yeah, that's cool how brains work that way. Yeah, it is. So in the Situation Room, they watch uh, the Chevalier construct armoring itself with pieces of stuff that it's picking up, blending and mixing attributes of materials, including aesthetic attributes. He also refracts as he moves in what strikes me as a similar way to the appearance of the shards in the shard space. Also, an even more horrifying nursery construct is also present, surrounded by giant minions. Uh, We soon learn there's also a Mathers and a Goddess construct as well. And additionally, on top of all this, the Kronos Titan is on the move with the Seamurg uh, flying around him. So, you know, everything's everything's bad. It's it's as if Chris picked just the worst possible choices for his shard bringers thingies uh-huh. th- that were possible. Right. Nursery yeah. goddess and Mama Mathers weren't creepy enough and disturbing enough on their own. So here's them again, but bigger and scarier and more powerful. Right. I mean, my, my thought was like, this is basically the capes you would list if you had to list like, what's the most irresponsible thing we could do? Yeah. 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 Remember last week when we were like, no, they'd never bring back Kepri. That would be stupid and reckless. I fucking believe it now. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. No. You, yeah. Good point. Because I, I think that's basically what I said. Like, oh, that sounds sounds like there'd be too much of a risk. It's like, yeah. no, they're, they're apparently not thinking about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about this, though, is is with we, we learned that a little bit later that goddess is specifically like a goddess that communicates through media. Um, so her power affects capes and capes only through media. Um, and also Mama Mathers is just like it's just Mama Mathers. But like more um so it seems like they they say specifically that chris did this to convert to counter surveillance attempts but like it seems like specifically kenzie 
Uh-huh. And and I think that's Chris, the former member of Breakthrough, acknowledging how powerful of a cape Kenzie can be and how damaging she can be uh-huh. when left when when left up to her own devices or not limited in any kind of way. Right. Yeah. I mean, he already has this fixation on privacy from the very beginning. This yeah. this yeah. desire to not be you know behind glass, um, and she's she's definitely poking him in that sensitive spot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, that's great. So speaking of Kronos, somebody made a nice thread about how the theory of anchors that we talked about earlier neatly fits in with Dauntless retaining some identity and not being too much of a disaster. Yeah, and, and like like Kepri before him and, and like what Victoria is trying to do, there's this idea of um, become getting in sync with your shard, right? And, and the result that happens when that happens and what that looks like. And we talked about this a lot lately, so I won't I won't reiterate it, but I, I read that thread as well and I really liked it. It's really fascinating stuff and it kind of shows how all this is coming together in really interesting ways. Right. Because we've seen a lot. I feel like we've seen a lot of examples of people overcome by their shard, relatively few of people whose shard had every excuse to take over and yet they retain some of themselves. Yeah. And I think as that thread points out, like it was that way for Dauntless, like even before all this stuff happened, right? That yeah. like he's the only, he like, his his shard said trigger vision and he was like nah <laughs> yeah <I'm laughs> oh busy. uh okay i yeah. guess that's fine if that's what yeah. you want right and and literally like didn't didn't end up being able to give him the full suite of powers because he was too busy yeah 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 great stuff so not yeah so uh so narwhal confronts the group as soon as they arrive and it's a pretty great scene very intense uh carol is there being hypercharged carol um <laughs> arguing with narwhal at every opportunity yeah, and, and there's one specific part of this before we get into more that I wanted to talk about because um, Narwhal is talking about Amy and she says individuals curated by Amelia Lever to pattern match to specific individuals injected with drugs by the villain Cryptid, also known as Labrat. They are now under joint control of Amelia Lever and the Shin government. Her name is Amy Dallin, my mother said. And it, we continue through this where it's like Panacea, Red Queen, and Carol really wants to push back on all of these, right? Carol wants to call her Amy. It is very important in this moment for, for this person that is doing these things to be labeled as Amy Dallin. My daughter is the one doing this. And I think, I mean, I think it sticks to just, it it also is also, we see the shock on Carol's face in this moment that like the full recognition that this is my daughter doing this. This is not a different person. This is not a different facet of a person. This is Amy Dallin doing this. I think it fits with both stick with your family through thick and thin, but also recognizing when they've got their heads up their own asses. Uh huh. Um, yeah, it fits nicely into that. Yeah. When they're not doing themselves any favors. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So Vista confesses that she was having snuggle time with Capricorn and Carol defends her to Narwhal. And also talks up Capricorn. Yeah, it, it just all you have to do to make Carol look good is put her next to Narwhal. <laughs> and then. Oh, man. Boom. And boom. C- conversely, uh, Narwhal's Narwhal used to be kind of a beloved cape. <laughs> in the, you know, like we used to not think that she was the garbage person but yeah here we I, are i don't know if i'd go far so far as say garbage person i, I think she's kind of just a jerk like like <laughs> no this whole, i know yeah like this whole thing is like she's just like teenagers act like teenagers and i had really hoped you would be the exception to that yeah how dare you act like a 17 year old girl you 
17 year old girl how dare and it's like i i her her attack on vista here is is really really mean and like i get it from the structure of we are people with a job to do and we've got to do our job to the best of our ability because like this the seriousness of these threats and the seriousness of our responsibility i get it narwhal but also you know they're humans still and i love i love that carol just kind of like lawyers the shit out of narwhal here and uh-huh. we, we haven't like gotten to explore the lawyery side of carol very much um but she really just lawyers the fuck out of her and like <laughs> she never like in that way where lawyers ask questions that they already know the answers to right like the, yeah. like this clever way of just presenting something without like being forceful about it um it, it's it, I, I really i really like it here and and i like that even at the end of this whole thing victoria still has respect for narwhal to the point where she says what my mom pointed out will stick with her. Like I, I believe that about her. Uh She will, she will hear this information that Carol explained to her and she will take it in and it will, it will inform her opinion of Vista in, in a way that maybe that stuff being unsaid by Carol wouldn't have. Yeah, that's true. And having Narwhal here being so prominent, she's another one dimensional person. I mean, obviously she's probably got all kinds of, layers that we're not privy to but like i think she's actually been portrayed explicitly by the story as being a pretty one-dimensional person she's one of these people yet again very dominated by the cape life she's a second trigger so we know that she's like an extra layer of fucked up on top of the normal cape being fucked up (laughs) yeah and and she just seems to be this like very hard-ass very hyper-focused person and and here she's being a bit ridiculous It, it is a bit ridiculous to 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 be disappointed in a teenager for being for not napping extraordinarily next to exceptional. Yeah. Right. A boy. Yeah. yeah. Which, which as Carol points out, it's like you were on break. There was nothing else you were supposed to be doing. Yeah. You didn't do anything wrong. Okay. What's the problem? So what's and the issue here? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, I guess I'm just pointing out that, narwhal's inclusion and focus here feels intentional in in context of this discussion of people and who they are and the the different dimensions the different facets and yeah you know facets and she's covered in crystals yeah yeah, i love it i agree i agree right uh victoria is then handed off to darnall and jessica to vet her Victoria almost asks about the vision that she saw of Jessica strangling Bonesaw, but she second guesses herself and instead confesses that she knows uh, the questions they're going to be asking and she wants them to be aware so they don't think that she's gaming the test, as it were. Yeah, we talked about this already, that this idea of full disclosure for yeah. ultimate fairness. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so... Can, can we just... Did, can we, before yeah. we go on, like... Yamada being here seems like a huge conflict of interest and I'm kind of mad that she's here. <laughs> okay. How, how exactly? I, I just, I, I just feel like the idea that your former therapist that you've had conflict with before where she, uh, informed people about your, me, your poor mental health in a way that was specifically wrong via the diary, um, and is not, up to date on how you're doing in any way, shape or form should not be able to influence anyone on whether you have the capacity to be involved with something. Like I, I can't imagine like my therapist from four years ago being called in to my current job 
to vet me on anything like that would be a uh-huh. fucking nightmare like i just i just don't think that and and to yamada's credit she acknowledges this like right away in this conversation she's like i i'm not comfortable being here if i hadn't already been here they wouldn't have called me in but i just like i don't like her here i don't like this yeah um i think i think i feel you there i i do i mean i think part of it is that victoria kind of wants her there but kind of also doesn't like it's a yeah, I, I think she, she, right. she doesn't really feel rapport with Darnall. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't have anything else to add, really. I, I think you're I think you're right that Yamada is in such a weird space right now that she kind of shouldn't even be around this stuff. Yeah. Like she kind of avoids saying much. You know, she, she very much sticks to the script here. She doesn't really she doesn't really leverage her her rapport, her personal connection with Victoria. It's very sure. much just like like professional mode. Jessica Yamada, uh, yeah, which I yeah. think is, is maybe her not trusting herself and thus staying to um, the, you know, the letters on black and white. Yeah. Also, cetera. just like the whole Chris situation and the whole Amy situation. Like, uh-huh. I don't think Yamada can be objective here. And I think she should recognize that. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, certainly not for this purpose of, of vetting someone else. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah like you're like maybe her insight could be useful in other ways but not vetting victoria so i've I've seen this theory floating around on the old subreddit matt so i'm gonna ask you the question is yamada a cape now uh i don't think so um because that i mean the reason the reason i don't personally like it is i just i just don't like it because i like there being prominent non-parahuman characters in the story and if you make her cape uh, fine now she's parahuman and that that can be interesting i'm sure i'm sure that there can be a way that that's interesting where we say okay well something particularly bad happened to her and trauma is a you know that the power is a metaphor for trauma and so sure sure but but um i just i i don't know like it seems like a rather superficial reason and really, I'm not even necessarily saying it's impossible. I'm just saying I don't prefer it. <laughs> I'd roll with it. I do think that X person is going to trigger is like one of the most popular theories in, uh-huh. in the community. And it almost never happens. Like the, Natalie's going to trigger has been something I've heard you know, for months. And yeah, um, right. I, I'm, the, the whole Natalie thing was was done perfectly because it was like a thing happened where she was in that moment like maybe I'll trigger and I can save us. Yeah. And it, of course it didn't happen because it yeah. doesn't work that way. So. I mean, how many, like how many normal triggers are happening these days in the story? We I don't, don't really hear about them. Yeah. I don't know that I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Literally no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I know broken triggers are, are rare. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know like what percentage of all triggers turn out to be broken triggers yeah. or anything like that. It just, it just, it's not something that the story is really focused on that much at all. The idea of new, new recent capes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, like, and, and by recent, I mean like very recent, like the last month or so. Yeah. It's just, it's just been something where it's not particularly relevant to the story, I guess. So yeah. Yeah. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Victoria talks about how her power is working better 
And uh, also she doesn't have the same panic slash terror reaction when Amy is brought up. Yeah, that's that's interesting, right? Um, yeah. Is, is, I mean, it's interesting that, that like she sees the control of her power, like she's gotten a hand on her power. And, and and we've I think you and I have been talking about over the course of the story about how Victoria's ever changing reaction to Amy and when she's brought up. And this is kind of the text explicitly mentioning it, but it's connecting it with control of her power a little bit here. Yeah, she sees these things as being connected. Um, yeah. And she traces them back to um, whatever Amy did to her. Or or it's interesting because she's not, I don't think she's 100% explicit about like, oh yeah, it was definitely all when she touched me. It She she traces different things happening since that point in time. Um, and she's really not too certain of anything. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I almost think, I mean, we're going to talk about it. I almost think she explicitly says, that none of the gains she's made have anything to do with Amy touching me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's interesting because I've seen some disagreement about this um, in a lot of places and I have my own position, um, which is that I do think that, I mean, I think that, I think that Amy opened the door and that the shard has taken opportunities since that time particularly when she's in places with a lot of weird portal shit going on um, to take advantage of that door being open. And that's my, that's my, you know, mental picture of, of how this is all unfolded. Yeah. And but that's, the, uh, that's, that's the one we talked about last week. And I think that's the one yeah. I still kind of agree with here, but I think Victoria does make a, a case in this chapter for how that's not accurate. Right. Um, yeah. I, I but 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 then you have to ask, is she saying that because she doesn't want it to be true? Sure. I don't know. I, I will know. say that every time in this book where I've disagreed with Victoria on her interpretation of something Amy did, the book has come back and told me I was wrong. <laughs> so so like I, I'm I'm I am I, I still it still makes thematic sense to me. It still seems like structurally it's been set up to where the door was opened by Amy and then the rest of this is a result of that stuff. But I, I don't want to doubt Victoria here cause it's bit me in the ass before. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely supposed to believe that Victoria has a pretty good read on her. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we'll see that conclusively yeah. in this, in this later in this chapter as well. Right. Well, setting, setting that specific question aside, I think the important or one of the most important things here is that she finally, finally forces herself to confront what happened to her in that shin prison. Yeah. And and then as she's confronting this, the terror does arrive. And, and right. she starts having to focus her attention on physical details of the room, like a sticker on a chair. And, and she's, walk, she's making herself walk through the implications of Amy having used her power on her. And what we find is that Victoria, like, she she know she knows like she's yeah. she's right. She guesses right. that Amy did something to her and then returned her to normal. And she even guesses that cloning her is a possibility, although happens to not be realized yet, as far as we know. Um, so like all this stuff where we've been saying Victoria just isn't isn't uh, coming to grips with this. She's 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 ignoring it. It's like well, I think I think this has been simmering. I think this has been in the background this whole time. I think you're right. She just hasn't wanted to look at it or say it out loud. And and being forced to talk about it here is making her have a panic attack basically yeah yeah but maybe gets her to a better spot i don't know i think talking to therapists is good 
That's the yeah. theme of, of parahumans. Yeah. Talk, talking out your problems. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do, I do love that. Like, you know, from the beginning of the story, I looked at this character in the way that I look at all first person point of view characters, which is with a little bit of doubt, um, with a little bit of, of understanding that the biases in which they come naturally with influence how the world is seen, you know, her, 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 and, and I think that is unquestionably true in the story that, you know, Victoria elevates heroes and paints villains negatively, um, even reformed villains and, and the way in which we, the reader look at villains and heroes in the story is influenced by Victoria's feeling on that. But when it comes to Amy bias or no, and of course she does have bias, but when it comes to Amy, Victoria just continues to be absolutely spot on, right? Absolutely correct in everything she said about Victoria or Amy. And that's, this is why, this is why I don't want to doubt her, Matt. Cause like it just continually, she is just has an awareness and an understanding of who Amy is, the core of who Amy is in a way that I don't want to challenge anymore. Cause, yeah. cause I, I, it's just, it's just, she knows her yeah. and she's, predictive of her well I, th- I think that's what this story is this is the story yes. of a person who has been abused they they know what's going on they understand they try to warn everybody nobody really understands or believes them nobody yeah. takes them as seriously as they should be taken and she's right the whole time she's sounding the alarm the whole time and eventually kind of gets used to not being listened to and, and here we have this text she's an exclamation point now not a question mark and it's kind of really fucking viscerally satisfying that those exclamation points are appearing over people's heads now when i was fucking trying to warn them mm-hmm. like that that's that's what this story is about this story is not about unreliable narrator needs to uh come to grips with the fact that she's being unfair to person who a complicated thing happened with yeah yeah it's not that. <laughs> and, you know, it might just because I've just recently watched a Netflix series called Unbelievable, which uh, if you haven't watched it before, it's incredible. Everyone should watch that. It's very good. But it's basically about a, a sexual assault victim um, who was convinced by police to say that she made up the whole story. And of course, she didn't. She was actually sexually assaulted. And it's terrible. But there is there is an idea with these kind of these kind of assaults that exists in the story that people don't tend to believe you. Right. That, that there is always doubt over the way you're what you're saying and how you're saying it. And, and this this real sense of you have to prove to me that what you're saying is right. Yeah. And I mean, that you're absolutely right that 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 is what the story is, that that like this is, this is, um, this is my, this is my abuser. This is the person that did this to me. I understand. Why won't you listen to me? And nobody was listening. Nobody was listening, including, uh, to, to, to be, to have full disclosure, uh, me, me, (laughs) right. Yeah. Uh, we're not perfect. Uh, I went into the story with a certain amount of expectations and, uh, was shocked when it went a different way and I shouldn't have been, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if Wild Bo was intentionally playing with us there, but we definitely, I mean, pretty much everybody, not just us, start, start out this story with Amy being, at worst, kind of a, an ambivalent figure. Like, like no, nobody hated Amy at the start of this story. Sure. I mean, okay, I'm sure some people hated Amy. But 
but we we didn't have the right read on her. We didn't trust Victoria because we had our own opinion. Right. It's just, just I mean, I mean, it really is perfect, right? Like, like in, yeah. if, if you're in your circle of friends, and one of your friends says another one of your friends is a horrible abuser, you're gonna have a little bit of inertia there. You know, but I, I know them. I've known them for a long time. We hang out. I've never <laughs> seen them behave that way. Are yeah. you sure? Are you sure you're not just making it up? You know what I mean? Like it's it's it sucks that this is true, but this is a natural and and you know difficult to avoid aspect of the way we navigate the world. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, and I think I think this story is looking at that head on and yeah. challenging that. Yeah, and saying, hey, no, <laughs> listen, yeah. listen to people. Exactly, and and I I appreciate that actually. Yeah. I think that might be a message that people need to hear. I mean. I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean me. I mean me. <laughs> yeah. I need to hear this. <laughs> Hashtag Victoria was right. Yeah, of course right. she was. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. yeah. So Victoria does convincingly argue that Amy probably didn't implant any latent or slow acting changes as part of a long term plan. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about before, where where th- this is where she lays out the case that basically refutes in a way the argument we made last week. Um I still I still really like I still really like the connections we've drawn here, though, and I—that's the only reason I don't want to give up on it. I don't want to doubt Victoria, but I just the connections we've drawn in the text are just too delicious. But I don't necessarily think that she's—I don't necessarily interpret this the same way you do. So let me just spend a second clarifying. Like, I don't think she's saying uh, what Amy did did not cause this. I think what she's saying is. Whatever Amy did to me, it wasn't an intentional long con meant to gradually change my mental state in any particular way designed by Amy. She did something, and then a bunch of other stuff changed as a result of my recent recent experiences, but that isn't to say that the thing that she did isn't implicated. It's just It's just to say the thing that she did wasn't part of some premeditated scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I yeah. get that. Okay. Um, All right. I, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say about that, really. I think, okay. I, think, I think we've clarified that pretty well. Cool. So Jessica asks what I think is a great question. She says, uh, what would the Victoria of three months ago think of the Victoria now? What about the Victoria of five years ago? And to answer the question of three months ago, she says, uh, um, because uh, basically I, I would barely be, be recognizable to her because she's to the me of right now, paralyzed, trapped, secretly terrified of every dark corner and going back to that terrifies me. Uh, and then re- in reference to her um, five years ago, I see her as a brute, a barbarian, someone who hurt others because she thought of it as justice. And and then on the converse side, maybe because I'm only living half a life and she fought too long and hard to maintain that half I'm ignoring despite everything about how we were raised making it so much harder to maintain. So basically mutual mutual incomprehensibility and and judgment coming from both sides of the past future victoria dichotomy in both cases yeah i mean i i think this it's it's a fascinating question and i love that the answer is basically like um any version of myself would hate any other version of myself at any given time or be Uh disappointed in yeah um and and i i think that's kind of just a central truism of people like i think i look back at past versions of myself and i'd be like oh man i was i like that and i think that person would look at me and be like oh man go go for a run (laughs) (laughs) 
So like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I, I like this and I, I like this as just like, you know, we, we talking so much today about identity and how identity is, is malleable and changes and shifts and, and moves around and it's, it's ever changing. And, and, and so it really gets hard to pin down a, a central definition of who is Victoria, who is Scott, who is Matt? Well, that that's constantly changing. Yeah. I don't know. And, and the version that I am now might not like the version that I was, but the feelings mutual. Right. Yeah. I love that you're calling back to that. And, and really a lot of what we're talking about here with Victoria in this moment has nothing to do with shard stuff. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just changing over time and having bad things happen to you and having that motivate life changes and perspective yeah. changes and changes in the self. Um, and yeah, there's some shard fuckery in the middle of this, but that's not, you know, that, that has nothing to do with the difference between glory girl and, and, and Harry's really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jessica then asks if there's a path back from here to a place of balance for Victoria and Victoria admits that even before she had powers, powers dominated her life. That balance Victoria never existed. Yeah. And this, I really want to talk to you about this because this is interesting because throughout this entire arc, we've been inundated with people without balance, right? Crystal, Carol, to a certain extent, Vista for sure. Victoria herself, um, Narwhal. We we've seen over and over and over again, these characters who do not have that balance don't have it. Um, and then we have Jessica coming back into the story as a person who, their primary thing has always been this balance. I mean, what do you think the book is, is saying with this, like this, this realization that balance in this instance is impossible. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, like personal opinion, I don't know if Jessica has ever really appreciated fully how, like what she's asking of these people who have these alien parasites in their brain. Uh, I mean, I get that, like, I think she's coming from a good place, but I think that Victoria actually has a point here when she's like, look, like, like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, especially not for her. I don't know. I, I don't really know. Uh, what yeah. do you think? I don't know. I mean, I just, I just think like one of the things, you know, we've been talking about in this book so much is this idea of identity and recovery and these things and, and how these things are different for every person. Right. I don't, I don't think that like this, this, there's this ideal balanced person that exists within every person that you 50% balance work life and home life, or in this case, Cape life and personal life. Like, I just don't think this exists in perfect equilibrium from every person. And each person needs to carve out what, what their own wants and needs are in that regard. And I think, I think, Jessica's been a little inflexible on that. And, and look, this book has shown that Jessica, uh, fucks up and makes mistakes and and makes assumptions about people based off of some of these core understandings she has of them. So she's not the paragon of correctness that, that I think she was for a lot of people in worm. So I, I think, I think a lot of this is challenging that general understanding of Jessica and coming to a place where maybe it's, maybe it's okay to be really into this for now, you know, maybe it's okay to be like super into work for the next few months. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I I'm, I'm kind of asking myself, like, does it, does it really mean anything to say like, I mean, I've always kind of thought the term work-life balance was a, 
was kind of a one of those new speak garbage phrases that doesn't actually mean anything <laughs> like like what is that like what do you mean work like i i spend if you want me to be bound like like balance like those are it's like you can't balance a, a color and, and a shape right like they're irreconcilable like it sure you, you do you do work so that you can have money so that you can survive there's no it's not a balance it's a cycle right like like it's not a i, I don't know i'm 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 trying to grapple with this in real time here, but I'm imagining like a firefighter or, or, or a police officer or something where you're basically in, in dangerous, stressful, unpleasant situations. Um, and, and what does it mean to be balanced if your, if your life looks like that? And it's like, I don't, I have no idea. I like what, what, how would you know if it wasn't balanced? What would you yeah. do to rectify yeah. that? I, I I literally don't know. Like I think I kind of get what Victor, what what Jessica Yamada wants, but I also get why it's a frustrating thing to be told. Sure. Um, yeah. And I also understand on the other side that like completely committing yourself to just this one thing is it maybe in the long run not a great idea either. Yeah. True. Uh, I I like I think there is there is a danger for Victoria that this this quest for control this quest to seize control of her shard and and is connected to this cape identity becoming her whole identity thing um and i will see what happens with that but i could very well easily see the book making a point about that being an unsustainable equilibrium mm-hmm. and i don't know i don't know i mean like it has been in the Taylor sense, it was an unsustainable equilibrium. Yeah. Um, Dauntless seems to have sustained it for now. Uh, we'll see. Sort of, yeah. Sort yeah. of. I mean, yeah, like sustaining your giant mountain man. Right. Uh, There's still something left of him, at least. Yeah. 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 So Victoria is then cleared by the psychologists in the chapter. Thanks, ends. guys. Yeah. Did you think I felt like the way Narwhal phrased it was that the clearing of her was an inevitability and really just a checkbox for her? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it seems says, like they need her. When you're done here, we're in the we're in the other room. Uh-huh. It's like it's the way she phrased it is like not a not a uh, if she makes it through, here's where she can come. Uh-huh. It's like when you're done here, here's where we are. Like I just yeah. I, I really feel like it was just going through the motions for Narwhal. I don't know if I pulled that out necessarily, but yeah, I, I think you have a point there. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no worries. So uh, Victoria's cleared. Chapter ends with our attention being brought back. To the large-scale conflict, the Sheen monsters are heading to confront the machine army, and Kronos, apparently acting as defender of Gimel, is heading to intercept them. Amy makes contact with Victoria over Skype, and Victoria agrees to help with negotiating. Um, and and we're just—it just hurts so much. Yeah. Um, I stared and, at the screen, nine fingernails digging in my sweater. All right. Yeah, we we didn't talk about the recurring motif of this chapter being Victoria's several times like draws attention to her, that missing fingernail yeah. anytime she's thinking about Amy. Yeah. Um, do you think that could also be kind of a neat callback to the, the five, um, um, page break, uh, old morning symbols denoting, it's just kind of an interesting, like, like fingers oh, yeah, and touching being a, a symbol of Amy and Amy's influence. Yeah, yeah absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So we we kind of talked about this already, but I want to conclude the chapters on this, this idea that this feels like the beginning of the end a little bit here, Um, just because like, like 
everything is coming together in a way that it hasn't in the past. Like Amy has been a part of the story since the very beginning of it. Of course she has. It's it's Victoria. It was always going to be that way. But this is the now the point where the ongoing conflict going forward is direct, like the 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 shard shenanigans and Victoria's quest there and Amy have now kind of aligned themselves in a way that like you kind of see when all these disparate plots kind of start aligning themselves to to be one plot going forward. And that to me feels like we're starting to get to the end. Also, this idea of identity, which which is something we didn't talk about, but I really feel like we've been talking about the theme of this book as recovery. And I still think it is. I still think it's an important concept that this book is dealing with. But the question of who am I? The question of identity is is more a through line for our protagonist than recovery has uh-huh. been, right? I mean, that has been true of Victoria from the very beginning. This this idea of who is who she is, defining the facets of herself way back in the very beginning of the book, like the the the, the scholar, uh, the waste, glory girl, and Terry's Victoria. This has always been something that Victoria was struggling with, and this is always going to be in retrospect, the, the place where we were going to go. And so that, that coming to the forefront, um, it just, all, it just feels like, and, and the, the end could be six more arcs. I have no idea how long the end is going to be in the book this long. What the hell is the third act? I don't know. But, um, I just, I just find it, it feels like we're, we're starting to get there. Yeah. It's interesting. It might be less like recovery exclamation point and more recovery question mark. Right. Well, and I mean, I mean, you could argue that that finding out who you are is is part of recovery. And and because because recovery looks different for every person. Right. Like what what worked for Rain, what worked for Tristan um, is not going to work the same for everyone. Yeah. But I I think I I, I think you're right, though. I mean, we've cleared the board. We smashed teachers, Crystal. Mm -hmm. We've got we've got Chris and Amy aligned, you know, with. Uh, working against all the good guys. We've got the Dauntless Titan on the move. Every like all these things that have been set in place are are in motion now. And that to me is kind of a signal of like, yep, yep, yep. We're we're in the end game now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That wraps up chapter 17.4. All right. Discussion question for this week, or for last week rather, was uh about character reunions. Character reunions are a great opportunity to show how things have changed. Uh, describe a favorite character reunion moment in Parahumans and how it was used to communicate important character understanding. So first from Fluid Horror, they say, The one that immediately jumped into my head was Sveta and Victoria's reunion toward the beginning of Ward. I didn't even realize until I reread Worm this summer that we don't get to see any of Victoria and Sveta's relationship in Worm. Their reunion tells us so much about each other's character, how delighted Sveta is at Vicky's new body, and how happy Victoria is to see Sveta in control and walking around in her prosthetic body, and the warmth and depth of their friendship. My mind filled in the blanks of their friendship to the extent that those few paragraphs gave me a clear picture of what it must have been like. Also, subtextually, their focus on their new bodies and happiness to see each other in control of themselves reemphasized just how much control and bodily autonomy and lack thereof is vitally important to and has shaped each of them. You can see it being something that they bonded over and also tells the reader this is going to be a big theme going forward. I like that answer a lot. That's really great, Fluid Horror. Yeah, I love that one. That's great. Mm-hmm. Up next, we have, have Scavenger 5882. Um, 
who says one of my favorite reunion moments was Bonesaw Riley with Jack after he comes out of stasis. At the start of this chapter, you see Bonesaw under Jack's thumb, an evil little monster willing to do whatever he says. By the end, she started her redemption, and her opinion of Jack has drastically changed. She no longer obeys him out of loyalty to his twisted vision of art, but out of fear of his retribution, she find out her disloyalty. Uh, that is not one that I thought about when we asked this question, but I, I really like that. It's kind of a, a twist on on the question that I, I find really satisfying. So Yeah, me great. too. And I, I love that that one was basically sort of uh, done within one chapter when i think back on the bone saw interlude i it's hard to believe that it was one chapter you know what i mean like it just seems yeah, like yeah. so much happens so it does. good yeah death of the artist says i'm going all the way back to the to the actual family reunion in arc one of ward so much information gets crammed into this one scene. We get minor beats about how the city is doing with Carol having invited over the whole neighborhood. We get a beat with, about the fraying state of Carol and Mark's marriage and their mismatched clothing and distant seating. There is level setting about Victoria's current attitude towards her family with her smiling and seeing her mom laugh and trying to wave down Crystal. Most, most tragically in this vein, we get Victoria saying the line, What? Don't tell me you didn't save that dessert you promised. Looking forward to that has pretty much been the only thing keeping me going right now. We see exactly how much Victoria's family means to her, all in service of eventually crushing our hopes and dreams to set up the entire conflict of the story to come. Things start to go wrong, we're immediately appraised of the family dynamic now, and how it was changing post-Golden Morning. Carol is borderline abusive to Victoria and entirely on Amy's side. Mark's uncomfortable, but unwilling to step in. Only Crystal actually seems to give enough of a shit about Vicky to actually try and warn her away. Then, of course, we get this stuff with Amy. Victoria crumbles before our eyes. We see her break down during the community center fight, but this is worse. She's using her power on her family, fleeing as fast as she can while having a panic attack. All of this just at, at the potential to even see Amy in person, let alone interact with her. And suddenly, I was on board. In this one scene, Wildbow appraises us of the general situation with New Wave, Victoria's specific relationship with each of its members, and the utter horror of her trauma with Amy. This scene alone sold me on reading Victoria as a protagonist. I was brought into her head, on board, and then crushed along with her all in one scene. It is as beautiful as it is efficient. Great post. Really. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, really good answer. I, I, I love this this idea of looking back on that um, that scene as almost a, a what could have been. Yeah. And I think death of the artist really accentuates that here. Like had Carol and Mark, um, had the present day understanding of who Amy is and what she's capable of back then, you could see a future in which Victoria is able to, to come together with her family in a very different kind of way. Like it, it, a, a blissful moment of happiness that Amy's, presence completely destroys and like I, I think i think in the moment we were clouded by this assumption that oh victoria is being really unfair to amy right uh but in retrospect it comes back it looks back as this is this what if this beautifully constructed what if scenario that amy wrecks yeah by her presence yeah it's, it's really sad that yeah. the dessert line is especially sad in retrospect yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, so next up we have a borrow Watt who says favorite reunion was Yamada and Bonesaw. Can't wait to see how that one turned out. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I assume we're going to at some point. Uh, we have to. Yeah, nice. We love time reference, by the way. I borrow. What? Nothing. Stop it. No, Stop it. Nothing, Scott. It's not for you. 
Uh, <laughs> Sandwich says, Clockblocker and Skitter's reunion when the Slaughterhouse 9000 first show up was one of my favorites. It wasn't enjoyable to read. Dennis had become a cynical cape who thought the world probably deserved to end, but it very clearly communicates who Dennis's character after the two years we missed. Taylor focuses on forging ahead while Dennis focused on the consequences of actions, um, as seen in the Echidna arc when they talked in the armored car. And focusing on the goal has allowed Taylor to continue to believe in her mission, but Dennis, after seeing all the damage resulting from parahumans and humanity, uh, has lost all all optimism and hope he once had. Reading scenes with Clockblocker after the time skip always stung, but it made sense how he became like that in a world so horrosome. <laughs> yep. Yep. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I that, mean, it, that was, that was a good one. It, it did seem like a good payoff. It seemed like we, we didn't necessarily know that we wanted to see those, those two talk again, but when they did, we were like, ah, oh, I see. Yes. Good. This is good. This is good storytelling. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, up next, we have Munz for College, who says, I like Imp's meeting with Taylor after the time skip because it shows how Imp has matured, seeing as how she doesn't kick the shit out of Taylor like she said she would if she hurt her brother. But she still duly punishes her for being a dog shit girlfriend by needling Taylor about Brian dating Cozen. The difference in subtlety between the setup and the payoff there are really something. Yeah, I remember enjoying that a whole bunch, too. It was a fun little meeting. And you get to see a, a both of you get to see both a more mature, but essentially still Aisha. Aisha. Yeah. I mean, I think that's everyone's favorite thing about like the second the the ending part of Worm is Aisha, just in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Niall Supernim says the reunion of Sveta and Victoria at the start of Ward is great because it's just a little espresso shot of pure happiness. Well, it even says as much. It's extra poignant because they're seeing each other's bodies for the first time, and that fact really drives home how unbearable their shared time in the asylum must have been, not getting to really connect with someone you love the way you want to. That said, all of that is being communicated through a language of joy, and it's just delightful. But now I want to compare this to the reunion with Clockblocker because I feel like it serves a very different purpose. Was he? Um, so then there's a chunk that's that's uh that's quoted here um about yeah and they're talking about the clock blocker reunion in just that just yeah, happened the, the, yeah. yeah so basically talking about how um how clock blocker is different now he's he's uh he's more he's more jokey um uh it's so interesting to me that except for the wards interlude arc this is all pretty much all we all we saw of clock in worm i feel like the fandom sees him as a sort of goofy comic relief character uh, which one, is tragic because it means that we only ever really saw him in stressful situations, but two, it means we hardly ever got to see the real Dennis, which is wild for someone who's such a fan favorite. I feel like this is maybe a little bit wild by saying, yeah, you laugh and you meme and you come up with hilarious ship names for him and Taylor, but this was an actual person, not some one-note side character. This reunion seems like it's shaping up to be the same kind of happy, relieved catharsis that Victoria and Sveta had at the start of the story. Wildblow shows us, us the clock blocker we know and love, his old goofball self, and at a glance, everything is wonderful. But then we get Victoria and Adult Wind's reaction, um, and Vista's in the next chapter, and the tone completely shifts because this clock blocker that the fandom knows is not the one that they knew. Um, so it's showing us not how much someone has changed, at least not directly, but rather showing how little we understood someone in the first place. I, I really like that take. Yeah, I, I do too, because like when we see clock at first, we're like, yeah, that's him. He's, he's being, he's being sarcastic. That's the one, that's the one trait that I remember after 9 million words. Um, and, <laughs> and then the story is like, yeah, uh, 
that's uh that's pretty you know surface level actually and his real friends would notice that yeah yeah cool i it, it's a great it's a great way of looking at it as this this kind of meta commentary on on how how we the reader look at people yeah um i mean if you think about it like the identity of these characters as i think we've talked about before as we define them as fully formed through our relationship with them right yeah True. not through how uh they are aka how their creator sees them I mean, that's a whole different fascinating because because I mean, what what one of these people I, I lost track of, of who, who said it, but the idea that they're a fully fleshed out person. Well, no, they're not. They're, <laughs> they're constructed in, in Wildbo's head, but 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 they're also a construct in my head. Sure. But Wildbo's is probably more fleshed out, but. It just gets so complicated now. Right. But I mean, like, I, I think the best the best writers don't necessarily craft an entire life for the character. They just craft the illusion that they've crafted an entire life for a character. Yeah. Right. Like you just make it seem like there's more there, um, even though there's not. Uh, yeah. Because because who has the time to make fully make hundreds of fully realized people? Right. Right. No, it's really but, interesting, though. Yeah. Sure. Uh, last but not least, we have Stellhex, who says the reunion that immediately comes to mind is the one between Victoria and her power in 16.12. She's only been without it for a subjective hour or so, but it also represents a much longer term reunion between Vicky and, I don't know, her ability to find satisfaction in her power. Having that largely untainted glory that she only ever had while terrorizing Nazis as a dumb team, just straight up heroics in sync with her power, summoning it to the fight, a delaying action against a mini endbringer to give her enough time to punch out an evil godling. And we see it in 17.1 that this sticks. She can trust her power now. She can trust herself now. Um, I like that. I like that. That's a much more positive interpretation of Victoria's wrestling control of, of waste than I have, but... I, I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. That's that's how I feel about all this. All right, discussion question for next week. Could you be reconstructed from all available data about you? <laughs> why or why not is the implied second indeed, part of this question. Indeed. Enjoy that question, folks. Yep, because I know we will. I know we will. <laughs> and that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. Uh, you guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via our email, gotwormpod at gmail.com, or on our Twitter account, at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is, of course, at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at crystal is the big bad mordinamail. That's what that's what it is, yep. Uh, if you're, way, it's way over Twitter's uh, character cap, but... Man, somehow you yeah, did it. Yeah, just made it work. So if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube again, uh, Google Play, Woo-hoo. and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. Shows like... Uh, Matt, like what? <laughs> uh, so do the right thing. The words this week are sneaky, stranger, stick thoughtful so now that you've been primed on that go over there write your story yeah and if you didn't catch last week's episode and by that i mean this week's episode um wild himself submitted another story to them and uh it's a great read so check out the do the right thing subreddit check out the podcast if you're a writer uh participate in the podcast write because it's fun it is matt does it every week i 
I don't. You, you should though. But everyone should. Does, everyone. He, Matt does it for me. Oh, so. is, that, is, that, is that what that is? <laughs> yes. Um, the Media MD guys covered Dairy Girls, which was actually a while ago, but that's kind of how their podcast works. I, D-E-R-R-Y. They seem to like watching it. it. I started watching it the other uh-huh. day and it is great. I love it. I've, I'm f- only four episodes in, but I love it. I have to put subtitles on because they're very Irish and very difficult to understand, but it's great. And um, they're they're also up to 12.3 in Deep Impact. So, you know, if you haven't caught up yet, they're getting along. They're getting it's, deep into that story. So it's not too late to go deep with them. It's not in pack. You can catch up. You can because they have shorter episodes than we do. So it's you're not. How do they? Do I don't it? know. So, but but the point is, you're not committing to the. You're not committing to the ridiculous thing that you're committing to when you listen to our ridiculous length show. So. <laughs> Maybe it's because our outros are 35 minutes and long. Because we just talk and just talk, 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 like like we're yeah. doing right now. Exactly. Exactly. Good point. Um, yeah. So if you like any of those 12 shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our uh, quarterly fan art contest and our costume contest, which is going on right now. Um Hangout sessions, uh, there's going to be a, a really cool hangout session this week. I'm not going to be there because my eyes are going to be lasered, um, but <laughs> Scott will. And I will. access to live streams of our recording sessions. And, of course, the Discord chat, which is pretty fun. Pretty fun. Um, Just pretty fun? Very, very fun. Extremely Su- fun. The most fun you will ever have, ever. Super fun. And as always... Of course, while you're on Patreon, go over to patreon.com slash wildbow. Donate some money to Wildbow as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And this week, special thanks to new patrons, Bidoof's Riley H, David D, D6E, Ty M, and Stan S. And also new Doof Dancer, Hannah C. We really appreciate all of y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. It, it's, it's amazing. I love it. King Slingers is happening. It's happening. I'm so excited. I finished Gunslinger over the weekend or my my pre-show reread and now I'm taking notes and dividing it into episode sections. So it's happening. Yeah. It's happening. I'm just waiting for you to tell me when to start reading and how long to read. It's, so It's going to be soon. All right. It's going to be soon. All right. Uh, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. We still love you, and there are still tons of ways to help us out. You can share this podcast with everyone you know, and you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever program. You know, like so many programs these days let you leave reviews on them that I don't even know about, so you can do them there. And if you do that, uh, email me and tell me that so I can go find where that yeah. is and and read it because we like to shout out you guys that take the time because it really does help us. It means the world to us. So thank you, those of you that have taking the time yeah do we don't necessarily have any means of uh you know seeing those but yeah it's it's yeah like especially if you uh live in another country because usually they're like country locked yeah and there's like one program i found that collates them and it yells at me if i try to do it for more than one <laughs> podcast yeah that, it really makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't be able to see what people think in other countries about podcast yeah. I mean, anyway that's all we got for you this week Next week, the sun continues to go down very slowly as we head into the mother of all conflicts. 